This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. The following content contains some explicit language that might not be suitable for children or Mormons. It's Monday, April 15th, 2019. From Slate, it's The Gist. I'm Mike Pesca. Wait. What am I missing? This was a big weekend for. Wait, what am I missing? Like Tiger Woods. Now, if you're a big golf fan, you know the ups and downs, the travails. But if you're not a big golf fan, and I checked in with a number of people in my life who weren't big golf fans, and I said to them, hey, name a golfer, they all would say Tiger Woods. And if I said, name the best golfer, they'd also say, I guess Tiger Woods. They didn't know that Tiger Woods for a while hadn't been the best golfer. So when I told them, hey, Tiger won the Masters, they said, yeah, isn't, isn't that what happens? I mean, sure, they knew about the sex scandal, but every athlete has a sex scandal. And when, when have we ever cared? Kobe, Magic, Ben Roethlisberger, all these guys had a sex scandal or ongoing, never-ending sex scandals, and they still get to play and win. But Tiger, what? He is the one guy who can't bounce back from a sex scandal? What'd I miss? Oh, yeah. People were saying that Tiger Woods would not be coming back. And why'd they say that? Well, he was getting old. So ask a non-golf fan. All right, how old is he? 43. Wait, he's a golfer. That's not old for a golfer. It's one of those stories where the more you knew, like the more you knew about golf, the less perspective you actually had. If you knew a lot about golf... They were trying to convince you that Tiger wasn't coming back, but just the average person who said, oh, this guy was like the most dominant ever and the sport is golf. Yeah, he'll come back to dominate and guess what he did. Same deal with Brexit. The less you follow, the smarter you are. So wait, wait, you're telling me that Great Britain's going to leave the EU and that's not going to cause a huge amount of trouble? What am I missing? I mean, it seems like a really bad idea, but you know, I guess maybe you're saying I haven't been paying that much attention. I guess the BBC talks about it like 13 times a day and the economist, they seem to understand it more than I do. All I understand is it seems to be a really, really dumb thing. What am I missing? Not much. I got to say same with Game of Thrones. Wait, when did these characters last see each other? I know I'm supposed to get their connection and I'm supposed to say, oh, that's when with the battle of the thing and you met the other one and the raven and send it and the three eyes. How much homework was I supposed to do before this show? What I did was I relied on the previously on part to remind me of all the stuff I saw. But I guess the makers of the show thought we were going to do a lot of lot of homework. So I was supposed to say, oh, that's how those guys knew each other. But mostly during the whole show, I was saying, what am I missing? So you got the girl on the boat and yet rescuing her was super easy. And yet you had like 50 boats. You had one prisoner. Why were there only 12 guards on the one boat with a prisoner? Why wasn't that boat surrounded by all the other boats so they couldn't just sneak up to the prisoner boat? What am I missing? And a whole plot this year is that they're going to fight the army of the dead and they're going to do so with the army of the living. This seems like a really bad idea. Here's the deal with the dead. They turn the living into the dead. So doesn't this mean for every person you lose in your army of the living, that's like a net loss of two because they're going to turn into be the dead. Wouldn't you just want to strafe them with the dragons? What am I missing? And aren't the Starks, aren't they like ridiculously stupid? 
John lost the Battle of the Bastards, except at the last minute, he was rescued by a force he had nothing to do with. I mean, as a general, the guy's 0-1, and Rob died in the Red Wedding, and Ned Stark walked into a beheading. I think these are the stupidest people in the universe. Am I missing something? What am I missing? All right, maybe not the stupidest people in the universe, which brings me to another piece of culture that was released right as the weekend was dawning. The Jedis. The Jedis are coming back. The Jedis are ridiculously stupid. I'm not going to tell you the Sith are better because they're Jedis too, but please make the case for me that the Jedis have gotten anything right. They have literally no good ideas. Every Star Wars movie is some Zen mumbo jumbo, brilliant visuals, like scooters kicking up red sand. But when you really think about it, it's kind of a dumb idea because why are you fighting a very technologically advanced army with a scooter in red sand? None of this makes sense. And then you have the Jedi philosophy, which actually, if you really think about it, has never worked. The entire Star Wars oeuvre, they got the first movie right, Chewbacca's a great character, and mostly it's the music. There were prequels and sequels where nothing was making sense except the music, like this song. This is from The Phantom Menace. This is how it ended. You could literally put any action sequence to this song, and that that would seem awesome. I mean, Star Wars did it. So in this scene, you had two guys with laser swords and telekinesis fighting one guy with a laser, like, Tonka stick and telekinesis. And the death blow with the laser swords and all these magical abilities, the death blow was that the one Jedi got conked in the head by the one part of the laser stick that wasn't a laser. Like it was a goddamn Looney Tunes cartoon. And all the Jedis are jumping around, and every time you jump, you always let your enemy land, and then you start to fight him with the laser stick. Why not slice him with the laser stick as he's jumping? Slice them with your laser stick, Jedis! What am I missing? And then at the end of this one scene, I'm giving it away, but it was the Phantom Menace. It was many, many years ago, or a long time ago, galaxy far away. So you have Obi-Wan Kenobi killing the big bad guy, Darth Maul. And how does he do it? He gets really angry and he kills him. And this is how every killing, every very audience-satisfying killing happens. And yet, what is the theme of the Jedis? Fear, anger. These are your enemies. They're not your enemies. They're always the thing that gets you to kill your real enemy. You know what? If we actually saw on screen in a Star Wars movie a Jedi who was living the truth of the Jedi, that fear and anger are your enemies, and just killed quite passively without emotion, we'd call that guy a psychopath. And we would not get behind him as a moviegoer. If anyone in Star Wars who was a hero struck a death blow with a calm serenity on their face, they would immediately lose the audience's favor. But fear, anger, those are your enemies. What am I missing? Jedis are morons. Tiger Woods is good at golf. Brexit's a bad idea. Game of Thrones, too much stuff going on. Why is everyone acting so surprised? What am I missing? On the show today, I spiel about Ilan Omar and the overreaction to a generality. But first, you asked for it, you got it. A deep dive into agriculture policy within the Democratic primary. 
Woo, Hawkeye, woo. Recently, there was this big forum in Iowa. Elizabeth Warren has put forward lots of ideas about ag policy, and the gist is covering them like the southern Iowa drift plain is covered with a ridged and furrowed landscape. Pulitzer winner and farming expert Art Cullen is our guide. Back to the land we go. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. Recently, a few of the Democratic candidates assembled in Iowa, not unusual to talk about farming and agribusiness and other issues, also not unusual. But what was, I don't know if I want to call it unusual, but actually quite welcome was there was some uh, meat on the bone of a few policy proposals. The man running this forum is uh, an old friend of the gist, Art Cullen, who's a Pulitzer Prize winning journalist and editor of the Storm Lake Times. And uh, he was on talking about his new book, Recently, Storm Lake, a chronicle of change, resilience, and hope from a Heartland newspaper. I wanted to talk to Art about his impressions of some of the proposals that he asked about. Thanks for joining us again. Thank you, Mike. I appreciate it. So in this forum, the person I was most interested in hearing about was Elizabeth Warren for a few reasons, but mainly because she put together, I would think, a very aggressive agriculture policy. Uh, she talked about breaking up some of the major agribusinesses. She talked about things like ownership of farmland. Are the issues that she talked about and highlighted, are those the issues you think are the biggest issues uh, affecting farming? Well, yeah, actually what I asked about was what can we do immediately to prevent another farm crisis uh, like we had experienced in the mid-1980s where we lost about a third of our farms. Longer term, uh, you know, what she was talking about is, is precisely what ails uh, uh, Iowa, uh, that concentration in uh, commerce, agriculture, technology uh, has hollowed out rural America. There's a farm income crash right now. Farmers have lost uh, money st five straight years in a row. There's uh, flooding right now in the Midwest. Southwest Iowa's washed out. And Congress seems paralyzed over funding for Puerto Rico and disaster funds are not forthcoming. And nobody, no Democrat, of course, has an answer to that because uh, the current administration has sort of paralyzed the gears of government. So this is this is how. Um, this is how mergers are evaluated. Usually, the government which has to approve mergers looks primarily at how will this affect consumers at the end. And this seems like a pretty good thing to look at. Like, phone companies will merge. Will this cause them to be able to manipulate the market and charge higher prices? What they don't look at is how will this affect, say, smaller phone companies or people already in the business? Now, with agriculture... It is true that farmers are making a lot less profit than they once did. But it's also true that consumers are paying a lot less for their food. Can consumers win and farmers win? Or is, does the solution have to be, as she proposes it and you see it, that for the way for farmers to make more money, consumers will you know, have to start paying a bit more for their groceries? 
Well, I don't know that consumers have to actually pay more for their groceries if transparency were reintroduced to livestock markets. Currently, most pork production, for example, is contracted uh, from the moment of birth uh, to the time of slaughter and packaging. That hog is owned by Smithfield Foods, which is a company that's owned by the Chinese. There are four big companies uh, involved in meatpacking, uh, two of which are foreign-owned. The two American companies are Cargill and Tyson. And, uh, you know, that we've gone from uh, the big four dominating about 40% of the industry back in the, uh, you know, the 1960s to now they control about 60% of the market. And, and, but what's more important is that, is that the production from farrowing a hog to slaughtering the hog is all controlled now through contracts. So it promotes price stability and predictability. Uh, but what it means is that uh, farmers on the outside can't determine a price. Right. I get that. But I think her, I heard her solution or her, the main thing that she pointed to is foreign ownership of Smithfield or agriculture businesses. And I think we're both saying, but I don't want to put words in your mouth, that whoever owned that things would be the same. And the American owned companies do the exact same thing in terms of what ails the the hog industry and also the poultry industry. So Precisely. It doesn't matter whether a Chinese guy or a Brazilian (laughs) guy or an American guy is controlling that hog. The producer's out of the equation. Although I have heard it argued that because China has different standards on, I think it's pronounced rectopamine, which is which is the uh, yes. U.S. hogs eat this and the Chinese won't allow yes. it in their food, that they might actually be uh, uh, an industry leader in uh, healthier hog exports. That aside, is the stuff that she's talking about, would that in fact, is it more if we had only done this, we wouldn't be in this position? Or is it more if we enact my plan, life will be better for the farmers. This is going right at the problem. Well, uh, she's talking about radical confrontation of a consolidated system. Mm -hmm. And the other candidates are perhaps more incrementalist, like Amy Klobuchar, for example. Right, uh, who seem to who, who seem to know her facts as much, to my way of looking at it, using words like monosopy, which I enjoy. Uh, she seemed to know what she was talking about as much as Elizabeth Warren, but was not as, I don't want to use the word radical, but was not as aggressive, maybe, in her tangible proposals. Yeah, the headquarters of Cargill are in the Twin Cities yeah. and uh, General Mills, and so she has to be careful uh, when stepping where the giants walk. And Elizabeth Warren enjoys a little more distance, uh, I'd say. And I think that's a fair statement. And uh, Julian Castro, for example, called for considerations of producers along with consumers uh, in in uh, any kind of uh, new kind of antitrust effort. And so I think that shows a, a fair level of sophistication on his part. But what, if you're blowing up the system, I don't know what the result is. And uh, that's that's the problem that I have. What results when you if you take a meatpacking company and blow it up and say this guy is going to raise the pigs, this guy is going to uh, run the nursery? I don't know how that works uh, and w- w- how it helps the producer in the end. I'm just not certain. Right, and you're saying that's essentially what Warren is urging. Yeah, it seems to me Warren and Sanders on the left are urging, you know, we've, we've, got to, we've got to confront the system head on. And I think there's a lot of, especially Iowa caucus goers, who are, tend to be a little more liberal than the average Democrat, 
That, that's very appealing to them. And then there's some pragmatists, I think, in the Democratic Party who say, you know, Elizabeth Warren's right, but I don't want to necessarily blow up Tyson. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, maybe a John Delaney takes a more nuanced view. Yeah, so the, I guess the question is, how desperate, and you know this because this is who you talk to and where you live every day, how desperate are the Democratic voters who are farmers in Iowa or touched by the agriculture business? How desperate are they? How willing are they to take uh, extreme measures? I think uh, rural Democratic voters have been overlooked so long um, that they're beyond despair uh, because we've been talking antitrust since they laid the railroad, since Teddy Roosevelt was president, and we find ourselves today in this situation. This isn't a Republican or a Democratic thing. We, we've been overlooked and flown over uh, our entire history. I think that, that a lot of people in western Iowa, where I live, are willing to throw caution to the wind and elect Steve King or Donald Trump. By the same token, they were uh, willing to throw caution to the wind and vote for Tom Harkin, who was a, a very fiery populist, progressive populist. And, uh, and they voted for Barack Obama. So uh, they keep hoping that somebody is finally, that the train will finally come in, but it never seems to come in. Yeah, because of uh, the antitrust regulation and the railroad from 1888. Yes. Do you think Tom Harkin, I don't know about Barack Obama, you think Tom Harkin would sign on to most of what Elizabeth Warren is proposing, to most of what Amy Klobuchar is proposing? Where would he be? Uh, well, he'd be right with them. And in fact, so is Chuck Grassley, the uh, senior Republican from Iowa, member of the Judiciary Committee, right. who continually calls on hearings and opposes uh, mergers between Monsanto and Bayer and Pioneer Hybrid International and Dow DuPont. Uh, and he continues to rail uh, against uh, the elimination of the Packer and Stockyards administration, was the principal antitrust enforcer in the livestock industry. And so that's what I'm saying. It has very wide appeal in, in rural Iowa. If Chuck Grassley and Tom Harkin can agree on something, uh, then I think Elizabeth Warren is on to something. Yeah. Now, let me ask you about one other thing. If I told you, or you know the answer to this, but if I told my listeners that there is an American politician saying uh, that we should, quote, use all available tools to restrict foreign ownership of American agriculture companies and farmlands, and I was to further add that this politician's states that foreign ownership of American agriculture creates a threat to safety and the defense of the United States, uh, they might think, oh, are you talking about a Donald Trump-type nationalist? And indeed, those are policies he endorses, but those were exact things that Elizabeth Warren said. What do you make of that? Well, actually, Iowa has a law in the books uh, that forbids foreign ownership of farmland. And uh, it used to have a, a law that, uh, that forbid uh, packers from owning livestock. Both of those are very familiar ideas to Iowans. And I think a lot of Iowans are suspicious of foreign ownership of our food supply, even if it's a bad bet on their part, because if, if uh, we get into a bad enough situation with the Chinese, then Smithfield becomes uh, 
becomes U.S. property, right? Yeah, using our so, using our own pigs against us. But I mean, New York used to have laws against the Irish working in workplaces. That's not a good idea, right? right? So, is it a good right. idea? Is and it I, necessary? I, I, yeah. I was always been an export sensitive state, both in manufacturing and agricultural goods, and so we're all very interested in what's going on in China. And I think most Iowans believe in free trade, and they're not as protectionist as some of the uh, Democratic candidates might be. And that'll take them a little fine-tuning to get used to. We're a free trade state, but we're also there's also a populist strain in Iowa. You don't have to prick very hard to, to find it to get below the surface. And so it's a curious combination. Yeah. Um, beyond the nuts and bolts of agriculture policy, and this wasn't the only thing they talked about, did you pick up anything in terms of style, connecting with an audience, um, just the kind of skills that a candidate might show that might augur well for the caucuses in 2020? Well, uh, again, uh, the two candidates we opened up talking about, uh, Warren and Klobuchar, have very different styles. Warren had... had uh, you know, she can blow the roof off a place, similar to Bernie Sanders. And uh, the farmer's union crowd and the uh, farm aid crowd absolutely loved Elizabeth Warren. And, and uh, very fiery, fist pumping in the air. She did roll out an antitrust agribusiness uh, white paper the week bef- uh, leading up to that forum and then spoke to a rally uh, in Storm Lake here. Amy Klobuchar comes along smiling, uh, you know, your nice neighbor from Minnesota, how about you there? And uh, so it's a very different style. But she also has very deep ties with the farmers union and the populist farm movements. And she's very well respected as a member of the Senate Ag Committee. And she's very familiar to Iowans. Uh, So it's a completely different style. Did Delaney Castro or Ryan impress you? Delaney impresses me with his understanding of markets and economics. He's really very smart, and uh, it's a shame that he doesn't get more traction, people to listen to him. He has a tremendous organization in Iowa. He has more offices and field organizers than anybody else, and he's been here for about a year. Tim Ryan, uh, you know, he he gave some pretty good populist zingers himself, uh, talking about, you know, Trump economics in Youngstown. We call that a scam. And, you know, that's pretty good stuff. Uh, but as far as mastering economics, I think I'd point to Klobuchar, Warren, and Delaney as the three who really impressed me uh, for understanding how agricultural markets work. Art Cullen is the editor of the Storm Lake Times, for which he won a Pulitzer Prize. He is the author of Storm Lake, a chronicle of change, resilience, and hope from a Heartland newspaper. As always, Art, thanks so much for your time. Thank you, Mike. I enjoyed being with you. And now, the spiel. When Representative Ilan Omar gave a speech to CARE about two months ago, no one cared. And then some right-wingers began to care or pretended to begin to care when she said this. Care was founded after 9-11 because they recognized that some people did something and that all of us were starting to lose access to our civil liberties. And after that, 
all, let us say it, holy hell, broke loose. Because Rupert Murdoch and his minions stoked a fire. They put this two-month-old sentence fragment on the front page of the New York Post. They talked about it endlessly on Fox. And of course, our president was triggered, ever the moth to flame. He amplified the message by retweeting a video juxtaposing Omar's comments with the Twin Towers falling down. Because, you know, we needed to be filled in. I see this all as part of Donald Trump's desire to give the nation a toothache and then spend his re-election campaign just poking at the nerve. Donald Trump, you see, will not stand the sin that Ilan Omar committed in that sentence. And it was the sin of vagueness. Donald Trump is a man who has led a life dedicated to accuracy and specificity. Like when he said this. So I think I've been given a lot of credit for that, and in terms of race, a lot of people are saying, well, this is something very special, what's happening. Whoa, with the white paper there, Professor. Stop me before you get to binomial regression. Or to take one of, I don't know, a couple hundred possible other examples, there was the time he laid out in painstaking detail his action items on one particular tactical undertaking. We're going to be looking at a lot of different things. And, you know, a lot of people are saying that, and a lot of people are saying that bad things are happening out there. We're going to be looking at that and plenty of other things. Specificity. It's all about his commitment to specificity. And while I'm being specific, let me play for you the question that elicited that oh-so-specific answer from Trump. We have a problem in this country. It's called Muslims. We know our current president is one. Right. You know he's not even an American. We need this first question. Certificate this man. First question. But anyway, we have training camps growing where they want to kill us. Mm-hmm. That's my question. When can we get rid of it? We're going to be looking at a lot of different things. And, you know, a lot of people are saying that, and a lot of people are saying that bad things are happening out there. We're going to be looking at that and plenty of other things. So Donald Trump and his war on vagueness aimed fire at Ilan Omar. He just had to. It's a crusade against generality. Now, perhaps you're thinking, okay, okay, Mike, Ilan Omar was indeed a bit too general then. I mean, that is what George Stephanopoulos was saying. As some people did something, that does seem to downplay the importance of what happened on 9-11, doesn't it? In fact, George Stephanopoulos said it again. So just to be clear on that, though, you, you, you agree that characterizing it as some people did something is, is not the proper way to characterize 9-11. Look, if the topic of Omar's speech was, I will now explain 9-11, that is not the best way to do it. But if the topic of the speech was, and it was, crazy shit that Muslim Americans have had to deal with, then maybe it's okay if we don't do Rupert Murdoch's job for him and exaggerate one phrase in a speech as indicative of insensitivity. Okay, but maybe it was the case that the rest of her speech, when juxtaposed with this vague part, was replete with Ilan Omar being really specific and calling out really specific people, all these bad actors, anyone besides a Muslim. In fact, that is not what went on in her speech. I went, I watched the whole thing. There was, for instance, the time Ilan Omar said this. The other thing that is exciting to me to be in this room is that there are very fascinating people outside. Very fascinating people. How dare you elide the true nature of the clowns and ignoramuses gathered outside that speech protesting you on that day. I feel like I need to make a video taking Ilan Omar's words. Very fascinating people outside. And cut right to this doofus. Quran is Mein Kampf in Arabic. Who was outside being interviewed by that doofus named Laura Loomer, 
who is a woman banned from Twitter for being a general whack job. I will play an exchange between Koran is mine camp guy and Laura Loomer. I have read Koran many, many times. And we need to read Koran so we know how bad that book is. Full of hatred. Kill. Left hand on the Koran, mouth proclaiming allegiance to our constitution. Give me a break. It's incompatible. Sharia law is incompatible with the United States Constitution. And you're right, Islam isn't a religion. And maybe in my video taking fascinating people and putting it next to that guy, I would also quote some of the other things. And this I got from a Fox News article from two months ago covering the speech. People outside were yelling, burn the Koran, Ilan Omar go to hell, and shame on you terrorists. If you want everything in America to turn into a battle line, which obviously the president does, we can go there. I mean, at one point in her speech, Omar said, People should not show up at their mosques. Their people meant peaceful Muslims who just want to pray. She spoke in generalities here or there. And she made a mistake or two, like saying CARE was founded after 9-11. It was founded much before. But it was a fine speech. It's the kind of speech you would expect from someone who is championing the Muslim American community. I have been critical of Omar's tweets about money in Israel, more critical of her tendency to keep going there and poking the wound rather than prioritizing what should be the rest of the Democratic agenda. But I side with her 100% on this horrible, ignorant, backward, misleading attack against her. Yes, it is an attack. And it's an attack that the president of the United States has leveled. Having reviewed the speech, I can report that it was, in fact, a fine defense of the civil liberties of Muslims, which is appropriate in speaking to a crowd of Muslims. Having viewed the crowd outside and having witnessed the president's reaction to it, it's clearer than ever that the civil liberties of Muslim Americans need defending. I want to take a step back and say one last thing about this, because this really bothers me. For... 50, 60 years, America was pretty much safe from attacks from within because we were a fairly welcoming, fairly warm country whose citizens were incorporated into the existing society. Integration was the greatest tactic to combat militancy. And it's in stark contrast to how much of Europe does it. And then after 9-11, and perhaps understandably, America got frightened and defensive. But the thing is, during this whole time, there were always responsible leaders, like the members of the Bush administration, who always did the right thing in terms of emphasizing integration over a policy of making Muslims feel apart from the rest of America. But now we have this selfish president and his short-sighted enablers who are undoing all that, and therefore they're weakening America. It is in general a wrong and misguided thought to believe that America needs to defend itself from Muslim Americans. But because of the prevalence of that wrong thought, it is now too often the case that Muslim Americans need to defend themselves from America. And that's it for today's show. Pierre Bienname and Daniel Schrader produced the gist. They demand more Dothraki wildling fanfic. TJ Raphael, senior producer of Slate Podcasts, is at this point just watching to see if Ghost and the Maria show up. 
the gist. Did you see the part where they said, what does a dragon eat? Whatever it wants to, and acted like it was some great phrase. Actually, that can be found along with other knee slappers in Meister Flufflenut's Book of Childhood Riddles. There you will find, why did the Lady of Winterfell march south to get to the last hearth? She has no sense of direction. Why did Jamie and Tyrion's dogs never have puppy? Because a Lannister spays his pets. Boom, Peru, that Peru, do Peru, and thanks for listening.